over the Christmas New Year break, Lorraine and the kids and I disappeared down to my mother-in-law's 11-acre property in northern New South Wales. It was great. There's no mobile phone reception, they've got a big paddock and there's a buggy for the kids to ride around in and there's creeks and they just kind of disappear for, for the day and, and come back when it's time to eat. And my mother-in-law's Christmas gift to Lorraine and I was this 2017 calendar of the Knitting Nanas Against Coal Seam Gas. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of them, but uh, essentially um, the acronym is NAGS, uh, uh, an amazing collective of older women who are concerned about their grandkids' future and the damage that's being done to the water tables and to farming and they're very much into practicing non-violent resistance. They knit and they sit out the front of uh, politicians offices or they um, uh, gather together to support community initiatives that are about uh, preventing damage to environment and farming futures and they're very active. Anyway, my mother-in-law features in this calendar and she's essentially the March pin-up girl, so to speak, and it's particularly striking. It's a photo of her being put into a police paddy wagon, having been chained to a fence whilst knitting and trying to prevent access to an area marked as gas fields, which were and are polluting the water table and destroying the livelihood of local farmers. We love her to bits. She's, she's very quirky and she's very funny. But personally, I think it's kind of sad when your mother-in-law has more street cred than you do. She also has many sayings. One thing my mother-in-law is particularly fond of saying is no one gets out of this world alive, which is a true enough statement. And, you know, there seemed to be a significant amount of getting out of this world action last year in 2016. Possibly no more or less than in 2015, but for me it seemed more when it came to musicians and actors and writers that were part of my childhood and part of my formative years. People like uh, Leonard Cohen and Prince and John English, George Michael, David Bowie, Glenn Fry, Harper Lee, uh, the actor Alan Rickman, and Muhammad Ali died last year, and Gene Wilder and Carrie Fisher, and all of them exited this world in 2016. It's a long list. And, and more than the deaths of famous people, 2016 also saw ongoing conflicts in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Somalia, South Sudan and Libya. We saw increasing gun violence in America after two decades of declining violence. We saw natural disasters and extreme weather events. Insurers paid out approximately $50 billion globally for disaster claims in 2016. And in Australia, we sadly saw the institutionalization of cruel and unusual punishment as a deterrent to people fleeing for their lives. And we also saw the tragic and desperate response of some of those people. 
self-immolation has to be the, the most desperate act that I, I can't begin to understand the, the context or, or the, the sense of desperation behind that. Our own family were devastated by the loss of a family friend who took his own life. There was much to mourn in 2016. For me, one of the particularly saddening things was the growing polarisation in political and social debates. A polarisation that I think is both contrived for political point scoring, but also bought into by the masses. I felt like conversation was a dying art in 2016. Not so much polite conversation, there was certainly a level of thinly veiled politeness but more a dearth of, of fierce and authentic conversation. Conversation about difficult and impassioned topics. And, and instead we saw confrontation and a lot of diatribe. I penned a somber reflection on 2016 on the evening of Christmas Eve, which was probably an attempt at self-therapy more than anything. And I reflected that I believe conversations can change the world when we can cast aside diatribe and genuinely engage in our difference, new worlds are possible. The book of Genesis shares the poetic of the world being spoken into being. Authentic conversations hold a similar power. The, the Gospel of John describes Jesus as the living word. And so we see that this outcast baby becomes the centerpiece of creation and offers a complete paradigm shift in how we understand the nature of God and the human condition. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, that, that Mina read for us, we essentially read what is now known as the Lord's Prayer. And this is something that's really become part of my morning prayer and devotion time. It's, it's something that I've come to pray daily. However, the reality is that this, this prayer is, is far less a prescription from Jesus of what to pray, but rather how to pray. It's, it's a formative prayer, a, a framing and forming conversation that should challenge and shape our thinking and how we are to live our lives. And so for the purpose of the conversation today, I'd, I'd really like to, to focus on verse 10, which says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now historically, at least in my understanding, Evangelism 101 has taught us that we are to save people's souls by getting them to repeat this magic prayer that asks people to repent and commit to following Jesus. Now, the following Jesus bit I have no problem with, and, and if the prayer is part of an initial conversation and commitment, then I have no problem with that either. I guess it's, it's more the sense of this, this moment, this, this prayer being the beginning and the end point and sealing some kind of contract such that we actually don't need to concern ourselves with those people anymore. You know, they're sorted now, let's move on to the next person. And this Evangelism 101 idea is also often matched with what I would describe as a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory glass elevator theology. You know, we're going up and out. We're getting people to heaven. We're leaving this world behind. And so 
if that's our philosophy, it doesn't really matter how we treat creation because our legacy is in heaven. It's not here. And if we then take that and match that with some kind of apocalyptic eschatology, then all the war that we see, or all the turmoil, all the confrontation, the trashing of the earth, then continues to feel like this angry, eternal damnation God who's coming back soon. So, hey, what does it matter? Let's just bring it on. Yet, Jesus' own words fly in the face of all that. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What this proposes is that our work is here on earth, our focus is here on earth. There's, there's nothing even to suggest that destination heaven is our end goal. Rather, bringing heaven here, heaven on earth, is the task at hand. So, if the gospel, the good news, is, is just about going to heaven when we die, then, then evangelism, the effort to help as many people as possible together to get there, will be paramount. But if the gospel is actually much bigger than that, if it's actually the other way around, about heaven coming here, as Jesus teaches in his blueprint for prayer, then I think that actually changes everything. Economically, ecologically, socio-politically, the earth is a mess, absolutely. The brokenness is everywhere. But what your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, does not propose is an exit plan. It, it doesn't propose inviting people to pie in the sky when we die. It proposes an invitation, yes, absolutely. But the invitation is for us to journey together in ushering in a kingdom here on earth that we have glimpsed, that, that maybe some of us have tasted, but I don't think any of us have necessarily fully experienced. What it proposes is a new way of life centered in love, a new ecology and a new regenerative economy grounded in mutualism, a new socio-political landscape characterized by peace and joy and justice and mercy. In many ways, January 1 is really just an arbitrary date. I understand the significance of it in people's lives and, and in resetting what it is that we're doing. But we also seem to pin a lot of hope on it. It's a new year and it offers new opportunities. I get it. And so my hope for 2017 is for more experiences and less stuff. I want less stuff in my life. My hope for 2017 is for more curiosity and conversation and less confrontation. My hope for 2017 is a world in which we no longer fight fire with fire. A world in which we refuse binaries of left and right. A world in which we are willing to share power and privilege and admit that in doing so, even though that might feel like oppression, it's actually called equality. A world in which we are more interested in the question and conversation than we are in being right all the time. Where we are more willing to be humble and engage each other in our humanity 
rather than hurling flaming rocks of certainty at each other. My hope for 2017 is for a world in which I personally am more willing to extend my pain and discomfort threshold for the sake of the other and their world and their ecology and their betterment. I sadly came to the conclusion over coffee the other day with Jackson that my willingness to endure discomfort for the sake of other people, people I possibly don't even know or may never meet, is actually pretty poor. I, I actually, if I'm honest, have a very low threshold of selflessness. And I realise this just in the day to day. I realise this in knowing that Shell Oil is responsible for massive oil spills in Nigeria that, that continue to destroy ecologies and farming livelihoods and, and they're not actually doing anything about it because of a legal technicality. I know this and yet this week when I need to put petrol in my car I'll probably stop at the local Shell servo and fill up my vehicle. My willingness to go without for the sake of someone else has a low threshold. And my hope is that this threshold will increase substantially in 2017. But the reality is that it's not going to happen purely because we've ticked into a new year. I can hope all I like, but if that hope is not grounded in prayer, practice and purpose then nothing will change. And so I'm beginning to pray about this and, and identify practical steps that I can take and be purposeful in that process. I, I'm being prayerful, practical and purposeful about how I'm going to get there. I, I'm, I'm having conversations with my wife and, and, and we're imagining things like creating a community garden. I'm, I'm researching the actual producers of my food and clothing and, and going to make some much more deliberate decisions about how I engage with these people and how I build relationships with them beyond the simple comfort of, of outsourcing that to a supermarket. I'm imagining a more sustainable, eco-friendly and people-friendly life and, and I'm carefully considering how I'm going to get there. That's my hope for 2017. What is your hope? for 2017. I noticed one of our own, Joe Fraser um, on Instagram, posted just recently, fresh, light and unburdened. That's my hope for 2017. I love that, I love that. And I'd love to explore uh, with you and with Joe about how it is she's gonna realize that hope. And so next week, we're gonna talk a bit more about our hopes for this year. And I'd love some of you to share, instead of me, to, to share in our teaching and conversation time what your hope is. It'd be great to hear from some voices that we don't often hear. Arundhati Roy wrote, Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. And so we can put our hope in an arbitrary date, we can close our eyes and wish that 2017 might somehow be better than the year that was. Or I can tune my ears to the small still voice, the breath 
of a new world and participate in bringing heaven to earth. That's my hope for 2017. May it be so. May it be so. So a few questions for us to consider as we do in our conversation time. Question one, what does on earth as it is in heaven mean to you? Question two, what is your hope for 2017? And question three, how might this hope be realized? What, what can you do, change or put in place? Let's discuss.